Mean Old Lion Media presents Black Arm of the Law. So welcome to Black Arm of the Law podcast, where each week we will examine the most pressing issues in the criminal legal system. I am your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, also known as Chief B. As we settle into today's show, don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate, and comment for us on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So let's jump into it. My guest for today um, is the former, but my and many others forever mayor of Charlottesville, Miss Nakia Walker. Welcome, Mayor Walker, to the show. Thanks for having me. Forever mayor. (laughs) You know, know, you're welcome. You're welcome. Forever mayor is... um, you know, it's definitely a term of endearment, and I'm sure there were some people who would love to strip you of that title, um, but this one is going down in the history books, whether they like that or not. So I have your bio um, in front of me, and I was struck, um, and we'll get to, to hear so much more about who you are um, in the short time that we have together, but normally when we ask people for their bios, it comes with all of these credentials and pedigrees and what they've done and who they've seen and who they are. But um, Mayor, uh, sister friend is is the only thing I can put when I read your bio, because you give homage to that your work centers on Black folk unapologetically. um, And you say that you were so influenced by your great grandmother, your grandmother and your mother but the words you said is their love powers the energy required for your social justice activism and their lessons on empathy and compassion are constant reminders of the binding nature of our collective humanity. I was just like floored by that. Tell me a little bit about you that gets you to that space where you have that kind of boldness to unapologetically say, you know what? I am influenced by my, my, the lineage, strong maternal lineage that is my family. And more importantly, they have positioned me with their humanity to dismantle systems of inhumanity um, in Charlottesville and beyond. Beyond, yeah. (laughs) You know, it's every time I think about um, how I do the work, why I'm the person I am, my only thoughts are first my great grandmother, then my grandmother and mother. And in that order, um, no other experience that I've had, no other person that I've sat in front of, um, has poured into me the way that, um, they have and witnessing them live the way they lived, um, has created what, (laughs) what you see before you, there is no other, um, person that I could think of that I could, you know, when you hear like, tell us a black American that you are, and people normally say someone they never met. And while I am usually in awe of those people too, my first thought always starts with my great grandmother and then moves down the line that, um, of women who, um, descended from her and often wonder who she, um, descended from to be who she was and watching them love no matter who was in front of them. Um, my great grandmother was born in 1912. 
So being able to spend um, a little over two decades with her and watch her, no matter what people did to her, what they try attempt to rob her of, move through the world with love, it's, it's just powerful. And it, um, in this work, as you know, and the barbaric nature of some of the things we experience, it would be so easy for us to start the othering of others the way they've done us. But Black people traditionally have had that passion, um, that love that pours out, which is a lot of historians will say the reason that we were easily conquered because of that um, love that um, emanates from us and how we always want to figure out why you're here. And as we ask those questions, why we here, try to prepare a meal for you and find a safe space for you to sleep as we would protect those who live amongst us every day. And they lived that. I read about it. They lived it. <laughs> I, even when I want to get off track, even when I'm upset and pissed off and frustrated and angry and all those things, I have a right to be one of their faces or voices will pop into my head and it will remind me that do not become, you know, those people do not become the people who oppress do not become. So it's it's because of them. I don't identify with the titles. I try to find like what is relevant in this moment. And that's what I usually, you know, try to live with. And it's a very hard thing to do in a world that's very, hey, show me all, you know, <laughs> all that you've done that we rank as being blessed and highly favored. But that's not um, how my world works. And sometimes to my detriment, but it's, it's, it's moving. <laughs> So, so I'm going to give you this because what came to my head is when you were saying like the blessed and highly favored, we always have these cliches, right? We have these wristbands. What would Jesus do? And, you know, and, and, and all sorts of things, you know, I've got my earrings on that say unapologetically black, yeah. right? And never apologize for, right? I'm all one step from Angela Davis and you're going to this gentle place of what would Annie do? Yeah. What would Lucy do? Yes. What would Annie yeah. uh, the yes. second, your mom yes. do? Any... <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's not my default. Yeah. Like, I know. <laughs> my, my, my default is cleaning it up afterwards. Like, what would Annie or Lucy or Annie do now mm -hmm. <laughs> after I've already found myself in some sort of predicament? because I've gone straight, you know, yeah. scorched earth policy on them, but that's not been your style. Um, although people would say that was your style, that they you would, had this yeah. very scorched earth style, um, particularly in your approach to the political arena. Can you yeah. set the stage for me of how you found yourself as the first black female mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia, mm. after the Unite the Right rally? in 2017 when all hell is breaking loose in Charlottesville about issues of supremacy and Confederate statutes and, you know, keeping people in their place, people like you in their place. Talk to me about that journey where you find yourself raising your hand to be sworn in as the mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia. And that's another extraordinary black woman. My Dear friend, Dr. Holly um, Edwards passed away that January um, 2017. She had asked me and others, you know, to 
joined the fight and her fight was blood gentle fierce, <laughs> you know, fight. That was her, you know, personality. But she said, you run. And I said no forever. And then when she passed, I thought, how can I honor my friend? How? And it kept coming, honor her by doing what she had asked um, for you to do. And, and clarify that, that was to run for city council? To run for city council, yes. And yeah, she was so currently on city council. She was the former vice mayor and would have been the first black female mayor had she accepted the appointment, but she turned it down. Um, so she actually would have been in that position. So I would have been second had she um, not turned down, you know, the appointment. But an, another amazing person who devoted her life to making any um, environment she was in better and better for Black people. She came, I mean, every meeting you would see her in her um, African, you know, shirt, head wrap, <laughs> skirt, and... Um, you know, we would listen to her and she was so gentle, but she was, you know, all of her frustration would come out in her, you know, conversation, but in a gentle way, you would almost miss it, but it would have you pondering, did she just, she did, you know, you would sit there, did she just tell me, did she just say I wasn't in it? She did, very nice, you know, not the way I would do it and definitely not the way <laughs> you would do it. <laughs> Hold but, she, <laughs> but she would do it. And, um, but she thought the fight that I had the fight in me and it was what the city needed and be, based on her experience there, you know, so she had the internal experience of already serving the community and thought I would, what I had to offer would be beneficial. So this is all occurring before August 12th of 2017. Like this is setting the stage. You hadn't started a campaign up until that point? I started campaigning. Um, Holly passed away in January of 2017. And I immediately, as I was, as I, you know, the, received the call that she passed, I immediately start thinking as I was sitting on my floor crying, how can I honor my friend? And that popped up there. So found out she was dying, start contemplating running. And then um, contemplated, this can't be what my life is going to be about. Because I saw her and what she went through and had donuts and coffee and ice cream sandwiches to help her cope with her, you know. <laughs> and so like, this can't be life. This is not what I'm, you know, going to do. And then March, I formally announced. So this was before the summer of hate. Um, before any of the events that took place that summer and, you know, months before the August um, 12th. And I, you know, was determined to be exactly who, you know, who I am. Um, and my campaign colors were red, green, and black. My campaign slogan was unmasking the illusion. And that's the illusion of this perfect city where everyone can thrive. And um, so there were no holds bars. I started talking about racism from day one and making, and I informed every room I was in, everyone I talked to that while I fully understood that being a city council member that I had to serve everyone, I could make sure people, trash was picked up and the streets were swept and all of those things in my sleep. But my primary objective was to make sure that black people and other people who were vulnerable to oppression, that their needs were met. And I never you know, wavered from that commitment. 
So I want you to be real careful here. And the reason I want you to be real careful here <laughs> is because as you drive through Charlottesville mm-hmm. and around it, there are signs yeah. that say that you are entering into a journey into mm-hmm. hallowed grounds. Yeah. Like they call this space hallowed grounds. Yeah. The campus, University of Virginia, they don't call themselves a campus. Mm-hmm. They call themselves grounds, yeah. right? Um I pushed back a lot on that and said, you know, there was nothing hallowed about those spaces that didn't endear me. And I can wonder why I just never got invited to to UVA to as a professor. But long story short, you are saying that you are going to challenge a system that right now people today talk about Jefferson and they talk about Madison and they talk about Monroe as the founding fathers of freedom and the constitution and these institutions of education. And you're saying, I'm gonna go through Charlottesville and unmask the illusion of these perfect forefathers and founding fathers of our democracy and the constitution. How does that go for you? Well, (laughs) it was a, Unfortunately, all the things that I had read in the history books, I found out through personal experience. I mean, that removing Thomas Jefferson's birthday from the city hall calendar as, um, you know, holidays was one of the most treacherous parts of uh, my time on. I received hate mail from all over this country. And I'm sure, I just don't remember the world, but people were writing from everywhere. um, How dare I um, deny Thomas Jefferson the right to be honored, celebrated. Um, And I call Thomas Jefferson what he was. Uh, enslaver, a pedophile, someone who victimized, someone who gained their wealth off the backs of others, and that is not a person to be honored and celebrated. And we talked about those bodies of work that he is so famous for. He was not thinking of Black people and um, their rights at the time. So I wasn't going to pretend with them that we were included in something and that he was someone to be celebrated. But yes, they're, you know, locally and nationally. I mean, UVA at the time... um, you know, they made a statement about Thomas Jefferson's birthday and that he would not be removed, you know, from the campus. Monticello put out, um, you know, on their social media, they just had like basically Thomas Jefferson's birthday didn't need to be celebrated because he was celebrated, you know, every day that came out on their social media platform. So in these very subtle ways at times, you even had the people in positions of power um, affirming the past behaviors and and on one hand saying we're working towards more inclusive um you know programming we're hearing from descendants of people enslaved on the plantation and at the same time saying that this person who is the central figure that we hold on to this historical site um we will not allow this person who they didn't even believe to be here me um to come in and tarnish you know, his image. And when you talked about how can you hold on to the, um, oh, 
Declaration of Independence and talk about Black people and their freedom and liberation and what hasn't been achieved today, there are no answers. It's just silent. But what spoke volumes was their willingness to come out very loudly and, um, you know, say that they were going to work to maintain all that he had built and all that the people were upholding today. And so, um, you know, for our listening audience, I had a firsthand view um, of the kind of hatred and violence and the things that were spewed towards you. Um, I was your chief of police at the time, so we should fully disclose that to the audience. Um, you yes. had selected me as your chief of police. And one of the comments people were, um, particularly even other council members, I remember one of them saying that you were trying to wash away his memory, right? Yeah. To get rid of the memory of, mm-hmm. of, of Jefferson, right? As, they, as we're talking about black arm of the law, like a person who wrote the constitutions are the laws of this land and of this nation. Mm-hmm. And you were butted. And that made national news when she said, you're trying to get people to forget that Thomas Jefferson existed. Yeah. Do you remember your, your response to that? I don't. I don't. What's it? So um, <laughs> talking about unmasking the illusion, your response was he will be remembered in hell. Oh, that sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) So I just wanted to talk about, again, you find yourself in this space. This is, let's walk before the Unite the Right, and then we'll talk about um, after, because as you were trying to say, listen, if we want to invest in something, let's get rid of, because the alternative wasn't just to get rid of the the celebrated holiday is his birthday um, and take something away. You said, why don't we do something different yes. for that day? Mm-hmm. Instead, give our employees a different holiday yeah. to, to celebrate, yeah. um, to recognize what they have had to endure. Mm-hmm. And how did you reframe that, that very um, difficult conversation? You know, that's often when you're talking about the symbolism, which is what that moment was, you know, again, making sure that we had the not just the reckoning of why are we doing this in the first place and why it should be undone but hey how do you replace this and it was still a symbolic moment but the liberation and freedom day um of this you know um of our area which is march 3rd um that is what we replaced it with and we wanted to or I wanted to, and uh, other (laughs) people who were invested in it actually changing, you know, local professors at the, you know, university, um, Dr. Douglas at the Jefferson School. I mean, we have a very uh, rich activist community. They had been working on making sure that Liberation and Freedom Day, which is the, um, our day when we talk about like Juneteenth and things like that, um, our day that people who were enslaved here were freed. And so we're, we're talking about, we wanted to make sure that a day where um, we had worked equally as hard in our own liberation, that people could use that day as a day of reflection, as a day um, of celebration. And so, um, again, 
a symbolic moment, it wasn't restoration, you know, things that I'd actually, you know, both been working for, but it total, it was a full circle moment of removing a person, um, a celebration of a person who had enslaved people and had the city focus on a time when those who had been enslaved, um, their journey towards being um, no longer being considered property of other people. And that was um, what we hope would be just the start of the conversation around what does true liberation look like? What does um, reparations look like? What does the city and its local level owe um, to the descendants of people enslaved on these lands? And it's not just holiday changes or plaques put up, you know, it is um, more significant um, investment that needs to be made. And we can have that conversation locally as we attempt at a state and federal level. So let's let's stay locally um, because there, there are so many moments that have been viral moments mm-hmm. in your, um, your, your mayoralship, I guess is the only way to, to describe mm-hmm. it. Um, and one of those um, viral moments, you were still in the campaign mode mm-hmm. and the Unite the Right rally had occurred. Mm-hmm. You know, things had happened. There are tiki torches. There are all of these very freshly scrubbed faces with gel in their hair, blonde folk, you know, they've got khaki pants on. They're, they're the, they look like what we would expect from back in the day when they would call someone a preppy or an Ivy School League yeah. kind of individuals. <laughs> They've come through Charlottesville with tiki torches, and many would like to believe that they invaded Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Um, I have always been of the saying that people don't come where they're not welcomed. And when no. there's not already a host there host. waiting for there, them, right? There was so a host. <laughs> there were a couple of hosts yeah. um, there that were waiting for them to come. And there's this one moment when after the Unite the Right and all the violence of that weekend, that council mm-hmm. gets back into session. And what was your reaction to two days later after these events are occurring, council, which is is headed by a mayor, Mike Signer at the time, mm-hmm. um, who is uh, Jewish in his faith um, professions mm-hmm. and, you know, is an attorney. They they gavel it in that day. Business as you usual. Know, yeah. <laughs> business as usual, right? Talk to me about what your reaction was and how that fueled your campaign even yeah. To, to, to make sure that you found yourself on council? Well, you know, the even before, you know, that moment, we had had several moments over, you know, the summer. The July incident where we felt as citizens that the Klan, the few Klan members that came in, and I say few, but I always am very cautious because while they were you know, those few members that came in, there are a lot of people who don't put on the um, Klan outfit, don't put on the hood, that are um, encouraging and are benefiting from their, uh, you know, from their presence. Um, And so those are the people who are scary to me. Those are the people that we have to monitor. Those are the people that keep the system in check. The people who come out and 
you know, are the ones who still will know that someone was lynched and still come out in a hood and be very comfortable with it. I don't think those are um, the people that we have to be most concerned about. And so that is a message that people haven't necessarily received well um, either, which is their business. But that is uh, has been a central part also of uh, any conversation that I've had. And so what we wanted to, what I wanted to make sure is that, you know, people understood we are there in July. They are, um, I mean, the officers are protecting, you know, I'm in the group that ends up, I'm not in the media group that ends up getting pepper sprayed, but I am close, you know, to that group that's assaulted by the people that should be protecting us and not protecting, you know, them. My dad is assaulted that day. Um, I have that I recently um, had memories pop up on Facebook of recordings, you know, from that day. And um, where I'm asking the current chief, chief of police, um, Chief Thomas, why are your officers putting their hands on us? So that was the July. And then we get, you know, a month later, we have the August 11th. So for clarity, mm-hmm. this is in July of 2017. 2017. And and the Klan is, they're here in Charlottesville. Like this is the pre-show, right? This is yes. the, the prequel. Yes. And... Instead of addressing the Klan and their violence and their hate, yeah. when they go to disperse everybody, the people who get pepper sprayed are the people who live in the community, are advocating for justice, are yes. advocating against these systems. They get pepper sprayed and the Klan just marches on and does what they do. They don't just march. They are escorted. Um, by the people that we pay taxes to protect us. Um, it was a little more than just march on. They were escorted in and they were escorted out and we were assaulted um, while they were protected. And that's what I remember best, you know, from that day and being present, you know, not reading about it, not um, watching it, being um, at the courthouse that day. And as we get into this, what's so interesting about this, and even similar to what happened with Tyree Nichols, at the time, Chief Thomas is a black male, yes, right? So it's a black male police chief mm-hmm. who may have had some obligations based on permitting to do certain things, yes. but those obligations didn't extend to, let's hit them with the pepper spray, um, folks who look like us. So it talks, you, it really does think about a system that can be corrupted regardless of your your racial identifications right yes and it's uh you know when you're the leader as you know um you have to take all the heat that comes your way from any one who is um in a subordinate which i don't like the word i was trying to find one but subordinate position but chief thomas officers openly defied him that day as they have at other times So this was, I mean, it was disrespect towards him um, in that position also. So tensions are rising. I mean, it's hot. It's right. The dog days of of summer, right? It's hot. We move into August of 2017. We've all heard a lot about it. You say Charlottesville. We hear, you know, 
good people, fine people on both sides from pres- President no. Trump. <laughs> this goes all across the nation. Like you say, Charlottesville, Unite the Right comes to mind. We're in the Unite the Right now rallies. Um, we are there. There's This is full-blown. People are people died, people are damaged, etc. And you're like, no, not here, no longer, no more. If you all sitting on that dais up there in council aren't going to handle it, then we, the people, we're going to assume some of our power back. And that's what we had to do at that meeting that you referenced um, following August um, 2017. We had to, you know, demand that the council not move forward with business as usual. I don't remember what was on the agenda that day, but if it was a typical agenda, you could be talking about anything from like sewer and drain lines to how water, you know, the water quality, which are all important things for a city. But that is not what um, we're going to talk about, you know, following the weekend, the August 11th and August 12th, you know, um, I was at the church on August the 11th across the street when they finally understood that, and I think they understood before then, but they finally admitted how large of a crowd, how large of a gathering that the individuals who were UVA trained, and as people you know, were here, I don't say people names that don't deserve their names to be spoken. It's a very hard um, thing for me um, to do. And when I do do it, it's just, mm. so there are people who names are written um, in reports and written in newspapers and on news that were graduates of the University of Virginia who lived in, um, you know, the Charlottesville community who have received their training um, on the grounds that we, you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, who orchestrated um, the August 11th and August 12th, um, you know, event. I often say to people that the Democratic, and I ran it as an independent, and I typically vote Democratic, but the Democratic establishment, um, especially the big D Dems, they had ensured that the threat of undoing what white supremacy had done could remain in place. And the past few years had individuals questioning whether we needed to be louder and more vocal and letting that whole, we will not be replaced. (laughs) You know, that whole slogan, we will not be replaced. Who do you people think you are to come in and demand so loudly and so aggressively that we stop oppressing you, that white supremacy no longer infiltrates every system in this country? And they stormed our community as they have stormed other communities. And after that, after people were killed, after a person was killed, after people were harmed, severely beaten, our leadership, some of our leaders, had to be informed by the community that business as usual would not be how we were going to move forward. And and we're going to save this for another podcast, because Mayor, because I, I, you know, I can imagine you and I could do this all day. Um, we could because Charlottesville is there's a direct line from Charlottesville to January sixth. And what happened? In fact, quite a few people who were in Charlottesville, who've been arrested and protested, were also arrested for January 6th. So there was a through line and that law enforcement had received lots of information about how violent it was going to be. And 
were complicit because they weren't afraid of who they thought would bring the violence, right? There was an alignment there around all of those issues. So we, we get through there. And then now January of 2018, you were sworn in as the mayor. Yes. And for the next four years, um, you know, it was like, I, I watched for three and a half years, this mixed martial arts in the arena octagon, yeah. like battle royale for every initiative that you attempted to do that could at least provide some sort of repair and healing for black communities. And Charlottesville is one of the wealthiest, and most people don't know this, one of the wealthiest, wealthiest. cities in the nation, nation in terms of millionaires. Yes. I think it ranks number in the top 10. It's The, the article came out, it's in the top 10 of millionaires mm -hmm. in Charlottesville. And it's not all the Dave Mathis band the way they would like to think. But, so no, talk to me not. just briefly about the four years and the struggles that you had, um, including naming me as your police chief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we so we definitely need another po <laughs> podcast. Um, you know, the... And as you talk about police reform, which I feel is being rolled back, we definitely know from a local level that a lot of the reforms that we attempted to put in place in Charlottesville, um, that they are being you know, rolled back. But one of the stories, the stories of your interview and, you know, you sitting through the interview, because, I mean, that's something that's coming up regularly now as I challenge the current police chief who believes that, um, well, I don't really know what he believed because he's ignored um, <laughs> my attempts, but it appears that he believes that he's being challenged because he's in the position and you're not. And it's very important for people to understand that I challenged you in the same way I challenged anyone because you were a part of a system that didn't, um, hasn't historically treated Black people well. And I didn't care who you were, where you came from. I needed to understand that you were here to do your best to change this system that often, more often than not, was hindering to our lives than helpful. And that was our interactions. I had my colleague, Dr. Bellamy, say, hey, she's not going to come <laughs> if you grilling her like that, you know. So that's an important story to tell, because as you watch black police chief after black police chief around this country be charged with the fact of going in and repairing hundreds of years of um, harm that these institutions have created, and then they get more backlash than any white, and especially our current white male, very charismatic police chief, um, is getting, even though he's been very vocal about um, what his intentions are. It's important for people to understand what happens to us when people ask us to come in and change things. Um, and our power is the fight that we have restoring resources where they belong because white people who have significant amount of resources often have had those passed down generationally. So that's stolen. We talk about stolen land. We need to start expanding that conversation every time to stolen resources, intellectual and physical. 
And so when you're talking about changing, you can only change if you empower people. And often people think we're talking about charity only, and that's not what we're talking about. Because we need to start the conversation, which I did, is that why do you have what you have? Why does your white self typically end up in these positions of power? And what does that mean for the people who you are charged to assist? And at what point, which was one of the major things that happened here with me that I'm still trying to (laughs) reconcile with, you read about it. It's constantly there, but the way white people identify with each other, I had, um, who I'm sure was a Republican before they decided to run in Charlottesville as a Democrat because Charlottesville only elects Democratic people typically, um, which was one of the things I was cautioned against running as an independent. But if I'm going to win, I'm going to win my way and I'm not. Um, I don't agree with what the Democratic Party is doing at this time. Y'all need to be challenged as you know, equally as the Republican Party needs to be challenged. And so my um, unmasking the illusion and all those challenges were done um, as an independent with no strings attached to any party, um, which the Charlottesville Democratic Party has a stronghold um, and those big D Dems at that has a stronghold on everything that happens here. And while you mentioned the wealth that's here, you have the um, extreme poverty Um, the displacement, the gentrification of black people and other people who are, you know, low income here. Um, And for people who are birthed here and are black, they remain in that poverty um, and it's generational. And that is a system. People here like to say, oh, if you just work harder, if you just find you, imagine some boots and um, find you some strings in that imagination, couple them together, maybe you can pull yourself up by them. <laughs> you know, that's what you hear. As they get millions of dollars um, because they are wealthy people here and they like to do good. Yeah, but... <laughs> so I'm going to stop you for one second because I, I was laughing to myself as, as we were talking about the challenges in my interview and and Dr. West Bellamy saying, you keep grilling her like that. She's not coming. <laughs> I, I can officially tell this listening audience, mm-hmm. I did not get the Annie, Lucy, Annie love um, in that room. <laughs> I was being grilled and drilled about was I authentic about the things I was saying or was I interviewing? Yes. And um, and the book. I was challenging <laughs> <laughs> tell them tell them the story about that so for the listening audience the reason why mayor walker cannot stop laughing is because she was challenging me about um systems and and me dismantling systems and policing and understanding that literally the impact the institution of law enforcement has on black and brown communities and um I talked to her about how you dismantled it and that one of the the concepts I was teaching a course at Carnegie Mellon called The Shading of Democracy, The Influence of Race on Policy and Politics. And one of my anchor books was New Jim Crow. And she was like, yeah, whatever. Like this sister (laughs) literally, yeah, whatevered me in this interview. And it was real convenient. I have my... (laughs) book because I pull it up out of my tote bag backpack and I show her the book um, 
And she literally like, mm-hmm, convenient. Because <laughs> I would have had to pull out my syllabus that had been teaching the past few years to get this mayor to understand me. And when I walked out of there, I said to my husband, that mayor lady, whoo, she don't like me at all. So for those in the audience that think that this mayor is one of those folks who's just going to give you a pass because you look like or you say the right things, there is going to be some depth of conversation. And we'll get to that um, at the end of it when I talk about my reflections um, and my end of shift report. So during the, the four years, I want you to talk about briefly imagining a just Seville, which was a concept that you came around about how you would govern, not just as a concept, but from the very beginning, the programs you were putting into place, the way you were governing were all kind of under this informal umbrella of imagining a just Seville. Um, and then you eventually launched that and you did this all while, and, and audience, I can attest to this, being under national scrutiny and headlines, you received more death threats. Um, I had to put, true story, cameras. Um, often the mayor would rebuff me against her own security measures. I'm not willing to be afraid of um, walking that walk. Police um, escorts, I offered myself five o'clock in the morning if I needed to meet you at your house to make sure you got to work safely. It got that bad. Um, as you were doing the things to dismantling it, the changing of the birth date for Jefferson, but under your leadership, they removed Confederate statutes that made national headlines in which you received death threats for, um, phone calls literally to the mayor's office, flooding of emails, threatening your life over these dead statutes and pieces of bronze all because you were trying to imagine what could love and justice and and beyond equity look like what do you do to make people whole and i don't say reconciliation yeah. uh, because reconciliation means we're trying to get back to something that was healthy and happy um what does it look like to repair people who have been um parsed up and considered nothing more than someone else's property and just Jump back for a second. My thought was just that it's real convenient <laughs> that this book is here. So I just want to make sure that <laughs> that was my comment. That was my thought. Like, no, no, we're not falling for this because we have to get it right. And that ties into what you were just talking about. My every decision that I uh, made, I attempted to um, work from a space that I didn't want to have to have someone follow me, whether it was immediately or a hundred years from now, and do what we are so used to in this country. Oh, let the future people apologize for what the former people did. And that's all we get is the apology. So I wanted to make sure you under my watch, you didn't have anything to apologize for. We're going to keep moving forward. Let's set the, you know, let's set the stage. Let's make sure that we were headed towards how do you truly create an equitable, um, welcoming, you know, belonging, all the, um, you know, words people choose, like how do you truly create that community? And if you happen to get it right, can you be an example as one of the nation's 
oldest, wealthiest community that has um, so much attention on it for the reasons that people who come from a space of um, historic wealth or privilege from their whiteness that they lay claim to Charlottesville being um, a world-class city. Can we actually create that? And people told me in those rooms, and this is where my grandmother them, they just don't serve me well. <laughs> I believe them when they said, we want to change. They have read all the books, you know, Stacey Abrams, Brian Stevenson, everybody come and they, yes, and they're so inspired and they buy the books and they underline them and highlight them and buy another copy and read that one again and stack the third copy on top of the first two because they're so invested in learning the lesson and seeing that their notes have changed um, and their actions haven't. And so that's what I learned that was mostly hard, you know, that was the most heartbreaking thing is the people, I mean, the liberal progressive people, as soon as their identity was challenged, as soon as they were uncomfortable, the people who would have a Black Lives Matter sign um, in their yard, as soon as you did something that they thought that, wow, the audacity of her as a Black woman. You got that. I got that. There was no support. And then they became a part of the same fight. And they couldn't um, separate the fact that, hey, they're fighting hundreds of years of supremacy, trying to dismantle a system for, in your case, that's primarily white and male. And here is their female who has survived it and still can show up after being very much a part of it and say, hey, these are all the things I know about the inside. And I'm really invested in this um, reform and imagining. And they said, no, no, because you question a part of me, you made me ask the same question as a white person, do I still have stuff to work on? And since I'm now questioning myself as a result of you, I don't really care if you are trying to um, work on eliminating, you know, the Charlottesville participation in mass incarceration or the overflow in the criminal justice system. I don't really care if you possibly can be someone that can go in the community and, you know, talk to people who may be killing um, each other because of the oppressive conditions they've lived under. I don't really care if, I mean, we can celebrate freedom, liberation and freedom day, but mm, you're not really going to be try to be liberated. Are you, I mean, what do you mean by freedom? And so if it wasn't this, And, you know, as we are in it, um, they can't turn us into the um, I have a dream, you know, which is the story they tell of Dr. King. So in the moment when you challenge them and I'm thinking of your incident with the church, which is the incident that I will say that for me, that's your Achilles heel. You know, you have somebody predominantly white congregation who says, hey, this this thing happened and you go in to protect your officers and say i'm doing if someone was harmed in the community who turned out to be you know a black male and there was a white person reporting this a white woman if he was harmed we're gonna you know officers will be disciplined and when you did your investigation and that turned out not to be the case 
you went from the community screaming, give us the report, fire the officers, all of that stuff, to you saying, no, my officers were lied on. And they came out and said, did you call me a liar? And then, <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you're going to say publicly that I'm a liar? And the support you had just, you know, just completely tanked because you question a power structure. And in that moment, and I've said it publicly, I've said it on the lives I used to have at the time, Facebook, it reminded me of being um, at the um, slave castle in Ghana, Elamina, and sitting there with the church in the middle of this castle, the dungeons around it, the governor's room, you know, above it, where the woman's dungeon um, people, our ancestors, they had captured, um, would be held and brought out a bathing area in front of the church for them to be washed, for him to sexually abused. And I thought about that church and the power that it has had over black people lives, all in the name of bringing peace, you know, to the world that again has never applied to us and how historically it has harmed us and how in your situation it harmed us and led us to you ultimately being fired. And because of the supremacy that I witnessed throughout um, my tenure there and then watching what was done to you, deciding that this is not a system that I can even, again, if I had all the tools, all the hammers and the nails, I mean, I'm trying to build something and I own Lowe's um, and Home Depot and I'm not going to get it built <laughs> because the people who have more power um, are going to come and make sure I don't get the wood delivered, make sure none of the nails come, make sure none of the semen that needs to be poured. The Whoever usually fill those orders never happen. And that's what I saw. And so the day that I decided that I would, and I'd already struggled to announce my decision for re-election. Um, it had been something I've been struggling with since the end of 2020. But that was the moment that I realized like how powerful racism, um, I, again, Having been, I mean, I'm well read. I know what other people said. I believe them, but who living it? <laughs> it was, you know, and I laughed now because that's usually how I try to keep, you know, I keep myself together. But it was, it, um, it was suffocating. You know, the whole experience was suffocating. And when you think about Charlottesville being a microcosm all of its power, all of its wealth, um, all the people who flood there to get married on plantations and to be educated at this, you know, what they consider a great um, institution to be on the grounds and a part of UVA. It's like, what, um, what can I really do here without destroying myself, you know, to do it? And I wasn't willing to stay in a system where I had to fight every time, um, I mean, every moment, every second. I mean, we're not even talking about every hour, just every second. Um, and I'm an honest person, so I'm acknowledging the power uh, that white supremacy holds over um, this city, that the elected officials are primarily Democrat members of the Democratic Party and the fact that I'm still wrestling with what that means for my work 
um, in this world and whether we will ever truly um, be a liberated and free people um, with the amount of power and the way they orchestrate um, and then, you know, show, you know, show that power. So I was going to ask you, audience, I was going to ask her um, a question, but I'm going to end it with this. Um, my question was, in December of 2021, you stepped away from the political, formal political arena. Would you consider running for another position? And the way she just ended that, um, I am not going there. Instead, Mayor Walker, I will just give you a, a, a quick, if you know, what's next? Um, what, what's next if you know? I actually am still debating, you know, about, you know, what next, you know, the reason oh, people- podcast, you heard it here first, oh, just so <laughs> record, she hasn't eliminated the politics yet. Go ahead. Oh, she no. I mean, I, I've been honest with you. I loved it. I mean, that's why I can talk about sewer lines and water quality and all of that stuff, because I loved policy um, and I love learning. And if you love learning and um, I can think on my feet, I can, you know, I can just do it well. I mean, I did a great job. I was awesome. And so, uh, <laughs> and so no, walking away from that, walking away from what um, I know I was doing, um, especially for us um, and how that would trickle. Normally we think of trickle down as a negative thing, but how that would trickle down to anyone who was experiencing any oppression. I mean, how we could change, um, you know, change this world. And because of the three women who loved me fearless, you know, Lee, and um, with like depths of the ocean love, you know, we don't know how far that is. And that's how I imagine it to be. I have not given up, but it is a hard thing to have been in there. And, um, you know, and to figure out how to, because I even hate to say it on here, because white people already know. They don't walk around like, mm, I got the S on my chest. You know, they don't do that. But, um, you know, and poking it out, but they do it, you know, so they know. And I'm not by any means defeated. It's just y'all are vicious. Um, and people usually want me to clarify, like some of them, you know, but the people who I'm not talking about, they know I'm not talking about them. And what I've found is I don't need to clarify. I'm not in the first place, but I don't need to do it for the white people I'm not talking to. It's usually those people with their fragile selves who need for me to walk up and, you know, walk up to me and say, but um, what do you think about what I'm doing? And I would say to people, if you need to ask me that, then you need to think about everything I just said um, and stop what right. you're doing and pause before you mess something up. Um, so yeah, I am definitely still very much in this fight, but trying to figure out a, a way to do it, um, that keeps me kept and is actually moving us forward while I was able to accomplish some things. And there are people who haven't, I mean, you know, the saying, I forgot more stuff, um, in my sleep that you didn't thought of. I've said that to a person who was, uh, you know, on a, um, city council. So I was very successful. Um, there's nobody that can deny that. It's very public. You can go watch the meetings. But there has to be a better way for us to not lose ourselves, for us not to think we have to assimilate to become, for them to not control 
um, us. If I had um, changed, if people would say to me, you're so, you know, brilliant, you're so smart, people listen to you, if only, and then they would come with the if onlys, you would tone it down, you wouldn't say black so much, you wouldn't make white people so fearful. I mean, it would be this whole list of things I didn't care about then, I don't care about now, because you as the oppressor don't get to define how I react to being a part of the oppressed community. You have to sit back and listen. And even if you have to take some jabs, you have to take them because you and your ancestors created this condition. I'm not going to tiptoe around you. I'm not going to assimilate. I'm not going to do any of that stuff to appease you. Um, and a lot of us lose ourselves in trying to get them to accept us, to get white people to accept black people, to do, to stop doing the othering, to accept us, even if you accept, don't accept the rest of the group. And I'm not interested in that. And so I'm still here. Um, I'll come back and in the future if I'm invited and I'll talk about whatever's next, but it's a... Uh, it's definitely, uh, it's a lot of work to be done. And the people who are doing the work need more support than um, they are getting. And if you don't fully understand what someone's doing, you need to pay more attention. Because a lot of the backlash we got was from people who just, they weren't paying attention. And with that, thank you, my forever mayor, Mayor Walker. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for listening. Each week we have our end of shift report, but I don't know if I can really call this an end of shift report. Our guests, the the former mayor of Charlottesville and the Kyle Walker, I mean, just dropping wisdom. If you were to really think about all of what she had to endure as a black woman, the first black female mayor in Charlottesville after the Unite the Right rally, um, who is fierce, refuses to compromise on her love and compassion and her desires to rectify or at least repair some of the wrongs that were done to the, the, the community here in Charlottesville under the, the, you know, the guise of liberation in Jefferson and Madison and Monroe. I don't think we walk away the same. I don't think we listen to that conversation and we're not forced to reflect or reckon with our own biases, our own comfort. Um, I think her words require us to read books like, you know, White Fragility and White Rage to see the impact even the most well-meaning persons can have when we just remain complicit and, and when, when we don't act. I will be forever grateful that this mayor was willing to partner with someone like myself who took a chance on a black female chief, not because of the demographics and the variables and the affirmative action, but who said, you know what, this is somebody that I can get into the trenches with to change systems of supremacy. Charlottesville, um, you've lost a good one when that mayor refused to run again because of systems that refused to, to bend um, and instead you wanted her to break. Please tell someone about the show and don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate, and comment on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is the end of my shift. I am 1042. Catch you next week.
The Black Arm of the Law podcast is hosted by Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Executive producers Ken Johnson, Steve Tompkins, and Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, the Mean Old Line Media app, or where you get your podcast. Follow Black Arm of the Law at BLK Arm of the Law on IG and X. Follow the Mean O Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O Line Media. Get the Mean O Line Media app in the App Store and Google Play for more great podcasts. The Black Arm of the Law Podcast is a Mean O Line Media production.